episode is brought to you by Slate House Publishing, recorded at Wayne Howard Studios. So Jeremy, I know that we were coming into this episode today to talk about Richard Matheson. Yeah. But as I was reading Hell House, his book from 1971, mm-hmm. I had a real change of heart because as much as I thought we would be talking about Hell House and I still kind of want to talk about Hell House. Yeah. I did not like Hell House though. Right. I I really disliked this book. I don't think I liked it either when I read it. Uh, I read it a few years ago. See, I I was under the impression that like you really liked it. I liked some things about it, I think. And maybe I, maybe like it was definitely a struggle to get through. Yeah, I, I I just feel like where I I was expecting to go with Hell House, which was more a conversation about the book's themes and, and what Matheson was really doing, the more I came to really dislike the book to the point that the question I now pose is really, what do we do with bad art? What do we do when we encounter a book or a movie or whatever that we truly just do not like, but is also very influential in the development of new art after it. We get stoned and muddle through it. <laughs> That's not a bad take. So like, like, well, and I love, I want to definitely talk, I definitely, definitely want to focus on, on Matheson, but for my part, um, how I can help contribute to this conversation too, I think, is while you were reading Matheson and Hell House, I was reading Michael McDowell and Cold Moon Over Babylon, and I was having the exact same reaction to this book that you were having to Hell House. And so I think that's how we can kind of bounce this conversation off each other. Yeah. For those of you who are tuning in and have never heard of Richard Matheson or Michael McDowell before— You have heard of them. You just don't realize it. Yeah. Richard Matheson is perhaps one of the most prolific— horror writers, really even maybe genre writers of the 20th century. And he influenced a whole generation of genre writers after him. Stephen King, for example, owes a great deal of debt to Richard Matheson, who wrote for anthologies like Twilight Zone. Mm -hmm. He wrote some of the most well-known episodes of Twilight Zone, uh, like Nightmare at 40,000 Feet, starring Will Shatner, where Will Shatner sees a a troll, like a little gremlin thing, out on the wing of the plane as they're flying the plane and has like a meltdown over it. A great episode of Twilight Zone written by Richard Matheson. Absolutely ruined by... Jordan Peele's take in the new Twilight Zone show. I, I still like, haven't seen it. Like, I watched it and I was thoroughly disappointed. That's really sad. Like, I, I was feel really like disappointed. That's, it's such an easy episode to do. Because, I mean, it, it's really excellent. The, the paranoia that mm-hmm. the character feels and nobody else believes this guy. You know, what do you do if everyone expects that you're the boy crying wolf, but, like, there's actually a wolf out there? But even if you haven't realized the um, the stories that Matheson himself have, has written, Matheson also has had some adaptions that are pretty damn famous. Like Will Smith was in I Am Legend, which is a Matheson well, I, novel. And I Am Legend has been uh, has been adapted multiple times. Yeah, yeah. I mean, Omega, Omega Man, Man with with Charlton Heston. Yeah. 
Um, there was also, I think there was another I Am Legend even before Will Smith, but the, certainly the Will Smith one is the most recent. In 1990s, in the 1990s, this movie starring Kevin Bacon came out where he is a blue-collar Chicago worker and his kid starts seeing this ghost and he gets hypnotized. It's called Stir of Echoes. And that is straight from a Richard Matheson novel. They adapted it. And there are some other stories from Richard Matheson too. There, there's. Um, I think it's it's. So a Christopher Reeve movie with time. Um, what is that? The name of that movie? Somewhere in time. Somewhere in time with okay. with Christopher okay. Reeve, and it's also got another really famous actress. She was like uh, Dr. Quinn, medicine woman. Oh, yeah, uh, Jane Seymour. Jane Seymour is yeah. in that movie, too. Okay. Um, that was a, a kind of like a sci-fi romance that, that got pretty popular in the 70s. Huh. Um, he did. He, he wrote The Incredible Shrinking Man, which was also developed into a groundbreaking science fiction film in the 1950s. Okay. But not just Richard Matheson, like I, I mentioned reading Michael McDowell, and you guys are probably familiar with Michael McDowell, whether you realize it or not. Stephen King called him one of the finest writers of paperback fiction in the United States. Um, Michael McDowell's written a lot of Southern Gothic and horror, which are two genres that I feel like blend together so, so well. Absolutely. Um, he is one of the, he's credited as one of the writers, screenwriters for um, Beetlejuice and for A Nightmare Before Christmas. And right. so you've 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 been touched by these guys in some way or another. If you well, and I think Matheson too. Uh, like that sounded creepy. <laughs> Where on the doll did he touch you? <laughs> <laughs> no, I think that Matheson was also really really influential in in ways that we don't necessarily see as as directly tangible. Like people mm -hmm. may have read I Am Legend, but I Am Legend was really I think the story that popularized viral infection as a means of transmission of stuff like vampirism or werewolfism or zombieism, right? A lot of your isms. Yeah. <laughs> he, trans he transmitted a lot of isms. If you're writing the ism speech <laughs> over here at the University of Arkansas for public speaking, you should choose zombieism. Yeah. I, I just think that would be a much... <laughs> more f entertaining. Uh, so how, speech. let's get back to your question though. I mean, how can these two authors who are so influential, how can they, how can they let us down? So like they have. Yeah. I, I don't know what to do with something like hell house. You know, for example, hell house was written in 1971. It came out after kind of like almost a decade after, uh, Shirley Jackson's The Haunting of Hill House. And between the two, as far as ghost stories go, that's a much better, like, that's oh, absolutely. the quintessential ghost story. The quintessential American ghost story has to be Haunting of Hill House. Mm -hmm. Shirley Jackson uh, delivered a book that I think really changed the paradigm of, of how we even think of haunted house stories yeah. going past that. And Hell House was intended kind of as... Matheson's riposte to that story. I mean, the, the structure of the story is almost the same as Shirley Jackson's story. Like, these these four characters are going to stay a week in this house because one of them is a paranormal expert, and he's trying to prove definitively 
the existence or non-existence of life after death, right? And so mm-hmm. they go to the most haunted house in America, which is this hell house, and try to stay there for a week while they're being assaulted by a ghost. It's, I mean, a really simple setup, but I found very unpalatable. I mean, of all of the art that we've talked about um, or are going to talk about, you know, being unpalatable, this was one of those that I felt like I really just genuinely did not enjoy this book. I didn't like it. So what didn't you like about it? He had a lot of, I think, kind of misogyny in this book. There are two female characters, and um, he writes a lot of of scenes where they're being sexually assaulted. Like one of them is just straight up raped by a ghost in this movie. And that was really difficult to like read and and kind of wrap my head around. The other one is is kind of shown as being more sexually conservative and the effect on the house is to turn her into like a a much more sexually voracious character. To the point that, you know, they really, really, he really plays on this dichotomy between like virgin and whore as if that's the, those are the only two um, ways a, a, a woman can be depicted in fiction. So let me ask you this, because we talked about Barker and the Hellbound Heart and Barker plays mm-hmm. with these similar ideas. So why, why does Barker succeed where, how does Matheson fail where Barker succeeded? Man, I, that's a really, really good question. And I, I'm not sure if I entirely have an answer for that, except that I think that, you know, Barker was using sex, I think, as an, as more of an allegory for, more of an allegory for like sin and, and an allegory, I think for, um, maybe the way that Christianity especially has, has kind of like, I don't know, has kind of cast this, this so human relationship sin- as, as, you know, sinful or, or something like ex- exclusionary. I'm, I'm, yeah. I'm not, I'm not entirely sure why Matheson, I think it sits on me uh, so poorly. Maybe it's, it's because I feel as though his women are so subservient and so, like without agency, whereas I feel like Clive Barker gives his female characters much more agency. Their their identities okay, are not makes- solely focused through the locus of their sexuality. But I also think that in comparison, like Barker gives even the male characters in that story a, a lot more depth and and confusion about their sexual identities. Like it, I feel as though it's not just one of the two characters, right? I feel like like they all have the same amount of dimension in Barker where I don't think they have the same amount of dimension in Matheson. From what story. I remember of Hell House, they, the characters do feel flat, like they're there to serve they're, the story. They're when... such, they're so archetypal. I mean, ar- archetypal, ar- archetypal. I've never archetypal? had to say that word before. Archetypal? Maybe that's the word. Yeah. Maybe okay. that's the pronunciation. Cool. I just sounded like Archibald? that. Archibald? I, let's just, chameleon. What other words can I fuck up today? Archetypical. 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 Yeah. Snuffleupagus? I don't know. But this is the whole podcast now. Yeah. Just, just how do you say pronounce random, this word? Like, big words. Like there's there's one And if it's French, if it has a French origin, one, just don't even there's I like, one I'll gram- butcher yeah. it every time. There's one grammarian out there who's like listening right now and just wants to fight us so bad. <laughs> Minage de Troyes. <laughs> 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 I 
<laughs> Can you like you go into a bar like, hey baby, want to have a Minage Detroit? <laughs> <laughs> Minage Detroit. <laughs> sure. Can we have a quesadilla later? A case. Archetypal. 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 Okay. Archetypal. Okay. Thank you. <coughs> Saved me from sounding like an idiot for five minutes. No, I think we still sounded like idiots for a few minutes. So. Yeah. I mean, we l- could we could ask the producers to cut that out, but no, we're gonna leave it. We're gonna because, leave it. Hey, you need to many, know we many, we make mistakes too. <laughs> you need to see that kind of immediate on air reporting where we fight to get our stuff right because we're not gonna make another Stephen Jones mistake. <laughs> it's coming. There's like a you say that and and like there's a, just a real landmine out there waiting for us for sure. So I feel like um, the issues that you're having with Matheson and with Hell House are the same things that I had with McDowell's um, Cold Moon Over Babylon, which is regarded as one of his best like or his scariest story. And I don't. So for me as fresh as this is on my mind, I can, I can tell you it doesn't work for me. So like, what's the short summary of this book? Just so we're kind so of, so you aware. have this family called the Larkins and this is in a small town. And I think like Alabama or, or Georgia or something, it's like deep, deep South in the small town called Babylon. And this family is uh, a family that's kind of lives on the outskirts of this town and they raise blueberries and they live kind of in this swampy ish kind of area. Um, the parents are killed in the prologue years and years ago. And the farm is then left to their mother and then their two kids, their son and daughter. And the book opens with the daughter being beaten and tied to her bicycle and thrown in the river by a man in a black leather mask driving a weird-looking hearse. And the book is trying to find out who killed this girl all while she seems to come back from the grave and haunt, um, haunt the town and haunt her killer who turns out to be one of the um, most prominent members of the town. The problem with this book is that one, there's a lack of agency. So even though the characters I feel like might be a little more developed than like, say the characters in, in Hell House, they're really undeveloped in Hell House. Um, the, these characters don't have agency. The grandmother and, and her grandson are looking. I mean, they do look for the little girl, but then they rally like they're the only ones with agency. Like the cop, like the town sheriff is like, well, I don't know what's going on. And people are like just kind of lazily going about their way. Um, the you think that the grandmother and the grandson become like the primary characters in this book, but they're killed themselves about halfway through so that the main character that we're left with is the actual killer. And there's nothing redeeming about this guy. So in the end, there's nothing to root for except for the Mm. supernatural forces that come back. The problem with this story is that the supernatural is only peppered through here. So you have this basically a small southern town, southern gothic murder mystery where you know who the killer is, again, about halfway through the book. And the redeeming factor of this should be the supernatural, but the supernatural doesn't come into a heavy-handed play um, really until the very end. Hmm. There is supernatural elements throughout it, but it's just kind of like peppered through here. It's not It's not enough. So it's it's a very I, mundane story, and it's, there's like, not a lot to root for. So there's a balancing act that has to be done in genre work, right? Exactly. This is, this is one of the things... Um, 
that I know we've kind of touched on a little bit in the past, but but genre is really difficult to write for because I think that commercially speaking, there's this perception that genre has to be kind of balls to the walls, crazy. Like if you're writing a supernatural story, right? Like you better have a ghost that rapes people, right? I, I, I feel like there's this perception... Well. I'm not saying that you should do that. Please don't do that. No. I'm really tired of reading those stories. You've read a lot of ghost rape stories. I unfortunately. I mean, outside of Hell House. Yeah, there, there are there not. There's several more. There's like it's like a whole trope. Maybe I've just shied away from these. Stories. Yeah, stay away. It's not good. I don't know. No, I I, feel I always like... think of Scary Movie too when Tori Spelling gets raped by the ghost and then she's like smoking a cigarette after and it's like, oh yeah, that was so great. Oh, see, it's so tasteless. It is tasteless. But she's I... like, are you gonna come? When are you gonna come meet my dad, baby? And the ghost is like, oh shit. Oh, what have I done? Oh no. Yeah, <laughs> but I I think commercially, right? Like like commercially speaking, just there's this idea that that you have to include as many genre elements as possible because that's what is making your work so successful. And I feel like that's a bad take. There are certainly some genre stories, I think, out there that that really dive into those genre elements and can be enjoyable. But for me, what makes a good story is always going to be the character-driven conflicts that illustrates something about our human condition, right? right? Literature, I think, is at its best when it is trying to explore the human condition, trying to help us confront some aspect of our lives and help us understand ourselves, kind of, if you will, map ourselves within society, within the economy, within politics, within, you know, whatever. Help us find our space as human beings living in a very complex and bewildering world. I will say that the characters in A Cold Moon Over Babylon have that awareness. They they are developed and they have, their wants and needs are very, very um, identifiable. And mm-hmm. so you can, they and they do service the plot, like the, like, they drive the plot of the story based on their wants and needs. So that is mm-hmm. a good thing. Cause that is, I mean, at least at Slay House, that's what we want. That's the right. idea behind a good story. The story shouldn't happen to the characters. The characters should drive the story. If that makes any kind of sense. No, it, I think it does. Like instead of having your flat archetypal, aha, we're going to learn this word before the day's over. Um, <laughs> the, the, instead of having these flat kind of no name kind of archetypal characters and, the story just kind of happens to them. And it's like, oh, this happens in this scene, then this happens in this scene. Instead, if you think of your story, your characters as having like wants and needs and letting their wants and needs drive that plot, then that's what makes the story compelling. Yeah, I mean, compare, for example, uh, a recent horror book that we've, we've even just talked about on the show, Stephen Graham Jones's The Only Good Indians. Yeah. That is very character-driven conflict. All of the characters have something uh, that they're they're trying to cope with, that they're trying to deal with in their lives. And as they're confronted with the sins of their past, right, which literally comes back to haunt them, um, they all handle it in very different ways. I think that it is a very interesting book that tries to grapple with the immensity of stuff like one's past sins, right, or one's one's uh, uh, past grievances. It just won the Mark Twain um, award for, what was that? What was it called? 
a Mark Twain award for for words in literature or something like. Yeah, it, I just know it as a Mark Twain award. Okay. Um, I, I mean, know it's that there, one of those it's awards a, that a, has a longer title. It's but. a specific title. Yeah, it's a spe- specific um, subtitle of uh, like the the the. Yeah. The award uh, type, but mm-hmm. but it's a Mark Twain award. It's a Mark Twain award for which for is literary amazing. excellence. Yeah. Yeah, it's, which it's shows, incredible and well earned. I should. Oh add. yeah, definitely. I mean, it goes to show why or how, just how, and we've said this before. We said this during that episode, but it goes to show how um, the the literary and the genre can blend and blend well together and feed off each other to to create a story that's not just scary, a story that's not just um, interesting and action packed and gory. If you like gory, but it also mm-hmm. has something more to say, and yeah, and that's what's so fascinating about it. Yeah, and I Unlike think that's these two that we're talking about. Yeah, today. what lets me down so bad about Matheson is is his characters are completely flat, and it feels like a book that it only exists to try to sh- serve the genre elements and not the human elements, because there, and that's not to say there aren't human elements in there. The the I think the way that they ultimately defeat the ghost, for example, right, is by humiliating it because they they basically find out like the ghost is all ego right it just serves to to kind of flaunt itself on everybody else unchecked and when they're finally able to confront it and emasculate it then they defeat it but that isn't really all that interesting and i think that in retrospect you know looking at it as someone reading it in 2021 as opposed to 50 years ago when it was first published it's aged very poorly because it's only playing into I think the same kind of patriarchal uh, structures of of thought pertaining to masculinity and and like it seems to be like all Matheson is doing in this story is just leaning very heavily on on traditional views of masculinity and femininity. And with regard on that note, with regard to craft, something I want to talk about and something I want to mention, metaphors. And literary tropes or literary conventions can both become cliche. Like you can overuse them. Oh, sure. And I see the same thing in in this um, McDowell book and in, in Cold Moon Over Babylon. The the tropes, the conventional tropes of like the ghosts as as being you know resurrected and 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 vengeance from the grave and this sort of thing. The tropes he uses are pretty tired. I wish he would have found some more novel ways to. To kind of address uh, some of these hauntings. So to circle back, you know, to this original question, I mean, Mm -hmm. what do we do when something is so influential, uh, but we we very strongly dislike it? I mean, what do we do when you have, for example, Hell House, which I think in some way kind of popularized this idea that, uh, you know... A haunted house has to be like this place of of extreme grievance, right? Or something like that. What do we do when we have an author who crafts something that shapes the way genre is interpreted, you know, much later? If we talk about tropes, what do we do when a book is kind of bad art, but then sets up most of the tropes that we encounter later on as people reinterpret them for their own work? We do... I hate to sound, you know, kind of whatever, but we do this. We we talk about it. We look and we recognize the bad art for what it is. 
we recognize what makes it bad and then we learn from it especially if like you're you know as publishers looking to to publish stories we learn from it and our readers and our listeners learn from it and our potential writers who want to work with us learn from it and say this is what not to do so how do i do this well and so you can learn i think as much from bad art as you can from good art you just learn what doesn't work and i think that's a really important thing to learn so i think that's for me, that's why these books are important because they teach us the lesson of this is how not to do this sort of thing. And this is this also teaches me kind of a more uh, hum- humble lesson and that even well-regarded and highly regarded and influential artists can still kind of fuck up sometimes. Yeah, they can still produce bad art. So, So that's, I mean... And it's not just the teacher in me. It's the it's the um, it's the writer, the crafter, the whatever. I mean, this is the lesson that I take from it. It's like, what can I learn from this? Like, what is done well? And there are some things that are even done kind of well in this. And I kind of remember even in Hell House, even though it's been a few years and I've read a lot since then. Um, there there were a couple of things that I did kind of like. I didn't all in all out hate it. I mean, but still, it's 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 ciphering between that, that good and the bad. It's, it's splitting it apart and saying, this is what works. This is what doesn't, this is why this works. This is why this doesn't work. And how can I emulate what works in my own writing? And how can I look at what doesn't work and make it better through my own writing? Like what can I do to improve upon this? And so I think these books both kind of do that. I, I'm a bit sorry that I'm not up on Hell House. I do remember how arduous it was to get through it because I was so frustrated yeah, with a lot of it. I had a bad time. <laughs> which is why I actually thought about going back and rereading it. And I was like, no, I struggled with it the first time. I don't know if this is something I could sit through again, especially after trying to sit through this McDowell book. Yeah, there are a lot of things that I will sit through. And uh, I, I, I have a hard time not finishing a book once I start it. Um, this is another conversation yeah, for things, entirely. for things that we sit through, just listen to our Thanksgiving episode and then, then you'll see what we're willing to sit through. You guys are in for a ride next week <laughs> for sure. No, but I, I think that there, um, th- there's been a lot of talk in the Twitter world. I think, um, as, as a bunch of, dude, you just sounded like you're like 80 years old. There's a lot of talk in that Twitter, tweeting, Twitter people, Twitter world. I, I have gone bald on purpose. I'm trying to fit a role here. I literally drove by, folks. I drove by Trevor's house the other day, and he was out on the lawn yelling at the kids to stay off his grass. I was. I, I was, planted that grass just recently, <laughs> seed by seed. He it did. Hasn't I watched him. Even had time to grow. <laughs> I'm just saying. <laughs> no, I mean there there was a, a a genuine conversation that was kind of struck up about what is your duty to an author and an author's work which kind of got you know brought me to this point not only because i disliked matheson's books so much but you know there's this question of like when you go out to read a book is it disrespectful to not finish an author's book once you start it is it disrespectful to buy an author's book and then not read it immediately is it uh disrespectful to I, I don't know, like, just, like, borrow a book or, or buy a book. Like, like 
what is your your allegiance to an author when you you know start working through one of their books or something like that? Can I give my hot take on those answers? Yeah, yeah, give me a hot take. As an author, as now a publisher, a podcast host, a reviewer, and a teacher, my answer emphatically to all of those is no, nothing. You have no obligation. You don't have to finish a book if you don't like it. Yeah. Um, it. I. I prefer. I think. I feel like people working who offer themselves up to work in like a reviewing capacity need to have a working language of craft and of literature to be able to provide solid feedback for why something doesn't work for them Well, um, or you know, does work for them, you know, because I've seen too many reviews out there where it's, it's more subjective than it is objective. And I don't think I'm going to have a hot take for you right here. Uh-oh. We're going to My drop pants the are mic. Far. We're, we are going to have a fight about this. <laughs> I I feel like I and I, that's because I've I've worked in classrooms and I've worked in areas where and I've read published reviews from professionals that deliver on that objective kind of performance. You can subjectively not like something. I'm okay with that. But if you're going to be writing a review to try and influence and build influence on a certain piece of art you need to know what to speak about that art to be an objective reviewer i i i don't see any other way around that i'm gonna you don't disagree. like it that's fine you don't have to like it i'm gonna i'm 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 chiming in i have to uh no i think that reviews should be as subjective as you want them to be because I don't believe – I don't – oh, man, we're going to get into this. <laughs> I don't believe a reviewer owes anything to a, to an author to look at anything objectively. And I don't think that being able to look at anything objectively serves anyone because you set up this weird arbitrary standard of what is good or what is bad, and there's no real room – I feel for delineation there. And we can't get objective about reviewing something like art because art is always something that should be felt. I think that art is always in some way, shape, or form going to be felt subjectively. And as a result, when you review art or when you look at art, you're you're always coming at it from a lens of subjectivity. We can give it the air of objectivity by by kind of like codifying how we react to something. But I think that when you review art, it's always going to be something subjective. And and to that end, I think that like what makes for good art or for bad art, you know, becomes arbitrary to to the listener, to the the viewer, to the the reader. As a response to that, I will say, um, our very discussion on these two books today, both kind of say, I, I think they both kind of support that, but I don't think you're making the counter argument to my argument that you think you are, because I think I'm not saying that we should come out as a reviewers and say, this is good or this is bad. When I say we speak about things objectively, we talk about is the character flat, is the character developed, what works and what doesn't for us in these pieces of art. And that is something you can talk about. When reviewers come in and it's just like, I don't like how this story went or I don't like the direction it took or I don't do the, that means nothing to me because that is subjective and your view on that might not influence I think my view on that. 
I mean, I think I would be mostly in agreement there. Just in that, like having a working vocabulary of how to explain the things that you dislike in a piece or how you explain something that you do like in a piece, having that vocabulary is very important. And if you want to be taken by any kind of a community... Uh, seriously, I, yeah, maybe you should have that working vocabulary. That's all I'm saying. Just have the. But vocabulary. I also feel like, like I don't know. I, I, I hesitate to put any kind of standards on like how you should or should not review something because ultimately your review is going to be subjective. But here's the and thing: you're that going to me, make though, from, the, from the 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 choice as to like what speaks to you and what doesn't speak to but you. But here's what bothers me: like if the review were just simply a review, if it were just not even a gradated kind of. Or, review if it was just like hey this is what i thought about the book that's fine but then when they can get on something like goodreads and say one star i didn't like the way the book went or i didn't like this or this and purely subjective there's nothing no vocabulary to build on no objective kind of reasoning for this that in effect that can that can affect the author and that's who is the so when we oh man goodreads is a whole other animal because like this is a community of readers right and and you can't control the community of of people who post stuff on on goodreads the voices that they have you know i would never want to anyway i would never i would never want to control anybody's we've gone so far over our time for for this episode like we we intended to just sit down for like a 30 minutes (laughs) <laughs> I, like when you're a reviewer 12 hours later <laughs> <laughs> when you're a reviewer on goodreads what what like which community are you speaking to or or like what what is your audience who is the audience that you write to i don't know if we can determine the same audience for everyone who reads a book because they may be speaking to someone completely differently they may be just speaking to yeah. themselves in that case, I hate Goodreads reviews, not because um, I, I hate the reviewers, but but rather because like I don't know the consistency with which you know something is reviewed. So if somebody yeah. says this is a five star book, and I really to me this is a two star book, right? Like how do I how do I know? Like what do I know about that reviewer? who gave it a five-star review. Like, I guarantee if you look at Goodreads, these two books are going to have some five-star reviews on there. Oh, more than likely. And I know you and I have read other books. It's also really difficult to tell, like, what is quality or what is not quality in something like Goodreads. Because, like, when you aggregate all of these thousands on thousands of scores together, you end up with this this number that is functionally meaningless, right? Like, what's the difference between a 3.5 or a 3.19, right? How is it that we see some books? That sounds some like books... math, and I don't feel like doing that today. <laughs> no, I mean, but I mean, what's the gradation? Even with some reviewers on Goodreads, you know, they'll give something four stars or three stars, but can they tell you what the difference between a three star and a four star really is for them? Why, why do they come down on on a three star or a four star why is it that we have so many reviews on goodreads for example that give something three stars and they really hated the book why does it get three stars yeah why isn't it or why, do they, why does somebody give it like they have all these glowing praise like paragraphs and paragraphs of glowing praise and then they give the book two stars no like, <laughs> it's legitimately like... <laughs> it's very very confusing to me like and i don't know the consistency of that particular reviewer right so i yeah. you know 
objectivity. I don't think there is objectivity. And I don't think that people on Goodreads should only be writing certain kinds of reviews because their communities are going to be very different. But I do think that we, if, if we're looking for a review, like we kind of owe it to ourselves to take every review with a little bit of a grain of salt. That's and, true. And cultivate, maybe cultivate a relationship with a reviewer that you feel you can trust, get to know their tastes so that you understand what kind of re a review you're getting when you go into things. And honestly, speaking to the other authors out there, don't look to, to places like Goodreads or Amazon for reviews. Yes, they, they use those, like Amazon uses the, the review rating system to like push your book up in line or something or make it, you know, more seen. But, but all in, really don't, don't look at those reviews. You're not going to please everybody all of the time. Um, and the reviews are going to be all over the place. Like Trevor and I are just talking about there's, there's no standardized kind of way to review. So people are going to like, like we said, you know, really hate on it and give it three stars or they're going to like absolutely praise it and love it and give it yeah. two stars. And so there's no, don't pay attention to those reviews. But what I would say in, in addition to that is like, cultivate your space right cultivate your vocabulary for for looking at work for for uh trying to understand what works what doesn't work i mean i mean we've de talked... develop that language for yourself because i think you and your community will will really i feel benefit. like this season we've talked pretty nuanced about characters the different kinds of characters you know even in this episode we talked about characters we talked about you know story and plot we've talked about theme We've talked about elements of craft, like the objective correlative. These are the things you should be paying attention to, to build your vocabulary. One, to write better, but two, also, I think, to recognize those reviews that can give you that kind of feedback. Yeah. Um, and to hopefully find the kind of stuff that does work for you. Yeah, yeah. I mean, read the, yeah, you to, to reach out and get the stuff that's, that's not only going to work for you, but it's also going to... Um, going to help you. It's going to, it's going to benefit you in your writing. It's going to benefit you in your reading pleasure. Um, it's going to, it's, it's going to bring you some kind of reward because that's really what we want reading. I feel like I want reading to do is to, to kind of, it's a pleasurable activity. It's something yeah. you know, we should enjoy. You should get something out of the exchange, whether it be entertainment, whether it be knowledge, yeah. whether it be enthusiasm, whatever. Oh wow, we ran out of both hourglasses. I think I think we're out of time. I think we've exhausted this topic for now. I we're, think we have. I we're think probably we've, gonna come we've back. Planted like Trevor with his grass, we've planted a lot of seeds for thought for the readers. Now you just have to yell at everybody else and tell them to stay I, off your stay off your, your yeah, mind I think, yard I think it's, uh, while these cultivate and grow. Ooh, I think it well like, I, at this point in time I think it's it's is that metaphysical it's time or to turn... horticultural? <laughs> it's horticulturally meta metaphysical <laughs> we're inventing new words over here uh, hey menage de troyes um. <laughs> <laughs> i think it's time for us to just turn it over to our community you know what are your thoughts what are your on, thoughts on this topic what do you think email you us owe? at editor at slayhouse.com and yeah. we'd or, love to hear your thoughts or tweet at us at tweet at us at house slay or at slayhouse lipids Follow us on Instagram. Hey, I made a lot of promises a couple of weeks ago, about, right before Halloween, that I was going to put all these pictures on Instagram, and then I just didn't do it. <laughs> do it. You should do it now. I'll it's do not it too now. late. Uh, well, it's, it's too late by the time they It's too late this. for the Halloween decorations, because I've already taken them down. I'm sure as hell not putting them back up just but to take a damn picture. But you took some pictures. You, you took I did at take least some one pictures. or two pictures. I did. Man, remember we scared the little kids. 
Oh, I loved it. This uh, like, real quick, the Halloween, the, the Halloween and, and House Slay was so fun. And I had like this phantom that's like five and a half feet tall, but it extends to like six feet tall, and it it's got its arms out and it sways like this. Anytime and, you make a noise, and it yeah, and it moans. It's like Ooh. so little kids would come up and they knock on the door for trick or treat, and they knock on the door, and all of a sudden the ghost would start moving, and, and every kid under the age of three just ran. They were the like fuck crying. Away. Like, we thorough, we legit like gave some kids some nightmares that, that night. Really that, yeah. It scared oh, yeah. me. I, I went to try to leave the sleigh house after we watched Adam's family. And, and, uh, and it, it scared me as I was walking out. Like I closed the door and the stupid ghost starts dancing. And I was like, oh! it gave me a good startle. Yes. All right, everybody. Um, Anthology still working on that. Ought to be out hopefully by. I'm hoping by December. We'll 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 see. We'll we'll play with it. And, uh, um, I I was gonna say probably January 2022. Yeah, maybe January 2022. We have our submissions page up at um, uh, house or at slayhouse.com for next year's uh, works. Anthology. Yep. Um, so we'll be looking for. Um, you know, maybe a novel or, or two or, or some, you know, a couple of times. I don't know. We'll, we'll see. Well, I'm not going to, I don't want to commit to any kind of numbers, but we'll have the, the next anthology, um, out. I think I want to do like next summer. I think that'd be a fun time. Yeah. Um, we submissions open up for that anthology in July. In July. So start working on your stuff now, yeah, whip it up into it. shape and, uh, and look for that submission window because, and then I really fun, great time. Trevor's not as, I don't know if he's as excited about this as I am, but I'm speaking to all the translators and scholars out there. I want, especially if they're not published now and and in bookstores, I want translations of old grimoires. I think we ought to publish. So if you've been sitting on a Necronomicon that you just discovered out in Libya somewhere, translate it, send it to us. Yes. We want it. We we're we're really excited about this, and I think we're going to try and be at StokerCon for uh, in May of 2022 next year. So you'll find us there, um, and we just have a lot coming for you. We have a a, a few more episodes left for this season. Next um, week is going to be the Thanksgiving episode. Next, so stay yeah. tuned for that. We've got a Dracula series coming your way pretty soon. And don't forget about Star Wars Update 1995. Star Wars Update 1995. I think you. Coming up, you explain a little bit more about that, don't you? I'll explain it next week. I want right. to keep some people in suspense for a little bit. Yeah. Time. This is pre 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 All right. Thanks for that contentious talk. Uh, glad Anytime. we didn't literally come to blows yet. <laughs> Thanks, everybody. Have a good day. Bye.